2: Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over a 100 years, and Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello, and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. On today's show... Ever wondered how the EU helps UK businesses? Well, on today's show, we discuss custom unions, free movement of goods, capital and services. And also, why are the UK's second cities so small? As always, I'm with Christian Spence and Alex Davis. How are we, gents? Yeah, good, thank you. Good, thanks. Excellent. Well, today I thought we would talk a little bit about what the EU has done historically and its support for businesses. So I guess we'll just kick off with what has the role of the EU been for UK businesses to date? What support does it provide?
3: I think one of the big stuff that most people will will see is what they what Europe calls its its structural funds, the so European Structural Investment Fund, ESIF, and the European Regional Development Funds, ERDF. You know, we'll all have been you know, driving around either the UK or even Europe and you'll see these huge signs saying, yeah. this project was part financed by, by one of those structural funds. And that's kind of the most... visible and transparent aspect. So that is about collecting money from the member states into a single pot and using it to redistribute that wealth around the union, targeting it at places that are either more economically deprived, economically slower to grow, or also investing in places which look that like they will they will give very strong growth to an area. So even here in places like Manchester, the big development down at Spinning Fields, the new building there, you think that's you know high value land, great opportunity. There's ERDF funding attached to that. So even in a place like you know in the heart of a rich city, uh, as it were, there are still opportunities for those funds to come in and uh, and support growth. All right, so you've got the ERDF. What was the first one that you mentioned? So ESIF, European Structural Investment Funds. Okay, tell me
2: about the this, this structural funds first. Let's, let's put a bit of detail on that.
1: I'm, I'm just looking at one of my blogs, which I did a long time ago. So what I've got written down from the ESIF, so we were allocated, this is Greater Manchester, it was allocated between 2014 and 2020, £356 million of funding. Um, the big kind of headline projects that were funded by that were the National Graphene Institute at £23 million. Um, the SHARP project at 7 million, so it's, it's kind of big kind of research and commercial type projects, I, I would guess. And that is from the... That's from the... well, The, the ESIF is, is kind of the kind of umbrella term for, for lots of different types of f- funds, I, I believe. Um, it's the European Structural Investment Fund and I, th- I think within that there's the European Social Fund and the European Regional Development Fund as well. I think they're all kind of just lumped into one. Um, I, I'm not quite sure, to be honest, what the breakdown of those is. Let's just talk a little bit then about the areas of the UK
2: which have benefited most from Europe. Um, are there any areas for you guys that come
3: to mind? I think the big ones, I guess you've seen it in the news really, on the back of the referendum vote is this kind of bizarre tension that those places which receive the most European funding, the most European support, are the areas which are most likely to vote leave. Uh, and that probably goes to the heart of a, a deeper discussion which I'm sure we'll get into um, but certainly you know we, we saw you know Wales particularly received a lot of investment funding Cornwall and Devon particularly so um, some of your uh, your northern cities your kind of post-industrial cities particularly so all of these funds from Europe are designed to essentially act across Europe in the same way that the central government in Westminster acts across the UK so you suck in tax and revenue from across the entire area and you redistribute that looking to give more of it to the poorer areas, and to help them grow. So it's, it's a big redistribution mechanism. So the Ukipian view on this is
2: why are Portuguese taxpayers paying for roads in, roads in South Wales?
3: That's it. Or indeed, why indeed are British taxpayers paying for roads in Bulgaria? Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
2: So it is particularly bizarre that, for instance, I mean, I think South Wales is the interesting one, always voted Labour, um, has had a tremendous amount of European money, and yet ended up voting... Up ended up voting leave?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that we've said before that when, when it comes down to it, it's very much a personal thing. And you can talk about the economic benefits of the EU and and the kind of centralisation of power or loss of sovereignty or things like that. But it, t- it tends really to come come down to one's personal point of view and personal politics is, is what I've t- tended to find. And it, it really also depends upon... The point of view which you, you come at the problem from, um, I mean, for, for myself in particular, um, if we go back to when I first kind of took, up, took upon the role of being the Brexit guy here, mm-hmm. um, which was I think around Christmas 2015 or something like that, um, I think what, which initially, what initially kind of drew me to it and got me interested in it was that this is going to be controversial this is. Yeah. Like this is going to be a, a hit to the status quo and I, and I quite like that kind of thing. Um, I quite like the kind of heated debate type issues. And that's kind of what got me into it. So I was kind of coming at it from a devil's advocate point of view to begin with. Um, so I, I definitely think it depends on your history with politics, how you voted before. But it's definitely cultural, it's definitely social, rather than it, it is just economical.
2: Now, it certainly is contentious. When you are speaking to businesses, are you finding that there is a, a certain mindset that businesses have towards the, towards the EU? And have they been in any way influential to
3: their employees when the whole Brexit process was underway? I I think we've seen a lot of that. The the really big example, not locally but nationally, the really big example was the CEO of JCB. Mm. Its headquarters are in Staffordshire, um, who was well-known, I think, generally as as being an EU opponent, um, was championing the Brexit role, so Britain could be perfectly fine out of this, my company will survive. Uh, and I think there was some evidence that you know that had some impact on on the employees view uh, mm. in all of that so yeah I think you know in from a kind of leadership and management point of view never underestimate the power of business culture and the culture at the top of an organization to, to influence the views lower down but having said all that I still think there's an in, we've seen a lot of times an interesting tension of businesses who actually you know are deeply involved with European trade either import or export um, have a you know a whilst a minority a sizable share of their staff um, coming from EU people of call who would still say actually their personal views that they'll be voting leave. So you get this natural tension that you know the EU is a highly personal and emotional thing for a lot of people and it has been for a very long time. Um, if you're the kind of person who's grown up for over thirty or forty years, and your kind of default political position is that you don't really like the EU, you don't like what it stands for, um, then I think often even the fact for some of those people that their companies, you know, may well be net beneficiaries of some of the things that you've done, that personal emotional view can override that.
1: I, I think c- c- just just on that, it's, it's it's again what I said before that it, it depends upon how you attack the problem as well. I mean. You can make a decision based on a very small amount of information, and with with a, a problem as complicated as this, it it really does matter. Um, so I mean, if you if you come at everything from a maybe, maybe you're a kind of free market, small government type person, then someone could give you a, a five minute overview of what the EU is, and immediately you'd think it was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, it's it's much more complicated than that, and and so I definitely think it's I definitely think it's more personal, um, and I think many people, including myself, have said that. It's only really been since the referendum happened that we've started to have the complicated conversations which we probably should have been having before the decision was made. But I don't think that's anyone's fault in particular. I don't necessarily think it's, it's maybe even the campaign's fault because it, it is just so complicated. I just don't think there was really enough time for anyone to quite get their head around and comprehend everything that we need to consider
3: here. I think yeah, I'll just pick up on one bit of that, actually. Um, that interesting bit about depending how you approach the problem is actually, in some parts, you can get to the point where you can approach the problem from a particular point of view and still have contradictory information about where it goes. So the big one we talk about yeah. is if you approach if you approach how the EU handles um, international trade, uh, mm-hmm. and you, um, that actually if you approach this from a very free market point of view, globalisation, uh, opening up of trade borders, you can see the EU in one of two ways. You can say, well, actually, it has liberalized trade across the continent. It has opened up you know, phenomenal amounts of, uh, of, of new um, trading routes within European countries, um, where it has successfully delivered big, powerful, and comprehensive trade deals. You know, South Korea probably being the most interesting one of recently, but very recently as the Canada deal goes through. You start to see, actually, the EU is a bastion for you know, drawing down borders internally and opening up connections to big markets. But you could also say, actually, that common external tariff that it it raises is a highly protectionist vehicle um, for essentially this is all set up to make sure we protect French farmers against uh, against poorer countries' imports from the from sub-Saharan Africa. It's there to oppress the poor of the world to make sure that the developed nations in Europe can succeed. So even from one point of view, you could end up with a very challenging position. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. so businesses for,
2: well, actually you, you tell me, it s- strikes me for the last 10, 15 years there's been a rather cosy consensus around businesses talking to politicians about policy. You now see a shift, do you, from policy into businesses talking actively about politics?
3: Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's one of the big shifts and we, it's something we've been talking about internally here now for a few weeks, Is is you're right, I mean, since um i I guess kind of since the blair era really in in the uk post 97 um perhaps not those very early days but certainly once we get into the mid-2000s and 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 sort of cameron coming along politics has sat in the uk in a very very safe dominating the center position Mm. um you know it's it's been relatively bland both opposing part, both opposing main parties, but all parties generally have been hunting for the centre ground. They've all been looking for the marginal votes in the marginal constituencies. Um, and you know, if you like the rough and tumble of politics, then you probably consider all that very dull. And actually, can we get back to the 1980s and you know, big proper adversarial politics, where um, where a lack of pragmatism and instead you know big tribal views dominate? Because actually, potentially that's more interesting. You can even make arguments that you get better policy because actually you get robust discussion about how things work. That's interesting. Um, but I think the kind of the Brexit stuff has started to change all that. And one of the interesting things, and in, you know, I'm not going to get into that in detail now, but is actually is the Brexit division a consequence or you know the, the cause and correlation? Which way does this flow? Mm. Are we in the place we are because of um, consensus politics, or has it come out of the other side? Um, so yes, I think businesses are. I mean, I'm not even sure. You say you know they're you know historically interested in policy, and now more interested in politics. I'm not even sure they were terribly interested in policy.
0: Okay. I think because actually
3: you know, the landscape was so smooth, um, both major parties were aligned. Um, politics across the European bloc and across most of the Western world were broadly aligned in terms of how globalisation, trade liberalisation, social protection, employment law, environmental compliance, all of that has you know, has had a very global outlook across most developed economies now for, for sort of 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and I guess it's kind of the rise, I guess sort of since, it's probably the since the recession really, uh, since the financial crisis in 2008, it started to open up that debate about the haves and the have-nots. We've got much more debate around inequality, um, social inequality of the poor and the rich, uh, poor countries and rich countries. Um, you know, does, the, does the modern world of globalization actively, um, actively harm the poor of developed countries at the expense of actually lifting up the very poor of the undeveloped countries? And yeah. is that a good or a bad thing? Um, and so so I think there's all of that. Now all of a sudden the Brexit focus is bringing policy, genuinely difficult, nitty-gritty policy to the forefront. Uh, and I think that's something that you know, with odd exceptions, apart from you know, bits of tax law, um, businesses haven't really got involved in in a, in a big way. All of a sudden that matters, and I think they're now starting to see that that policy landscape is shaped by political parties who are increasingly coming at all of this from from an ever-widening political spectrum. Okay, well, let's just backtrack a little
2: bit. Let's go back to um, support offered by the EU. Uh, would either of you just like to volunteer some information about more structural support that the, e, the, the EU offers? I know last episode we spoke a bit about... Um, Uh, Things like the customs union Which I know isn't isn't the EU But it still is structural support Are there any other key issues that we need to be aware of Which isn't implicit like giving away money But something like I mentioned before A bit more structural
3: I think yeah, I mean, I think the customs union is a good example. Actually, I mean, it, it predates a lot of the stuff. It, it has its you know its its origins go all the way back to all the way back to the nineteen fifties, um, but it was only you know really implemented in full um, sort of the 15, 15, 17 years ago. Um, and actually, there's a lot of e- there's kind of increasing amounts of evidence that a lot of the economic benefits of the EU over the past twenty years were actually delivered by the customs union side of the arrangement, rather than by the single market side of the arrangement, for, for long and complex reasons we don't need to go into here just now. <laughs> um, so I think customs union, undoubtedly, how do you facilitate trade? And I think that's, you know, just a slight diversion here. That's really about where a lot of international trade discussion is now. So, you know, our one of our big challenges mm-hmm. alex has been you talk to people and everybody's going on about tariffs you know, the big point is tariffs how do we get tariffs tariffs are important certainly so tariffs are when a government puts charges on goods that come into the uk from other mm-hmm. countries some of you sometimes i guess you know some of the listeners will have gone you've got the red card from royal mail to say you're going to have to go and collect this oh, from the...
2: nothing fills me with more dread exactly
3: go <laughs> to the go to the sorting office and you're going to have to pay a customs charge yeah that's a tariff that's what a tariff is. And people said, you know, that's the barrier. That's what free trade deals are all about, breaking down. And, you know, pre-1990s, that was very true. But in the 1990s, an organisation that nobody will have heard of a year ago, but today everyone has now heard of, the WTO, the World Trade Organisation, uh, was born with a goal, really, to try and reduce tariffs globally and, mm. and help and help with that situation. So the average global tariff now is about 3%. On the whole, there are some big outliers in that. There will be goods and countries that are charging hundreds and hundreds of percent on certain things. Um, But broadly, it's very, very low. The big challenge in facilitating trade is about what we call non-tariff barriers. And actually, the biggest barrier from getting goods from the UK to another country is not necessarily the tariff. It might cost they, it might cost the company additional three percent in cost to deliver that. But it's actually, will my goods need inspecting? What's the documentary compliance? The standards to which I have built these goods, are they acceptable to the regulator in the destination country? Those are the things actually which which facilitate or inhibit trade far more than tariffs. And that is really what the customs union, in its early day, in terms of trying to speed up and indeed actually eradicate. Border checks within goods to the EU, and then latterly the single market as it came along in 1992 with regulatory compliance across the EU. That's really where probably the the single biggest tangible, um, tangible evidence for the for businesses come.
1: I, I, I think I think one of the issues is around that as well is that it, it's sort of become so easy now in many respects to trade with with countries in the EU that businesses are kind of isolated from. From from the fact that all this stuff's happened, and um, and that all this this uh, this new 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 things have come into place to make trade easier. I mean, we, we've we've heard stories, for example, of. Uh, people who have been exporting and have been filing certain amounts of paperwork to get their goods across borders. And the EU has stepped in and, and changed regulations so that that paperwork is no longer needed. But the business has continued doing the paperwork anyway. Is that right? Because it's just so it's so kind of you know distracted from what's going on. Um, and I, I think particularly if, you, if you've set up a business after this has happened, you potentially don't realise how difficult things could become. Um, w- without all this kind of regulatory convergence and without all, all these kind of customs uh, agreements. And so I, th- I think it's quite a big issue that we've had in this campaign is that, f- first of all, trying to pick apart what parts of this are the customs union, what parts of this that are the EU, um, what parts of this would have happened anyway without the EU and may have come from more global bodies. Um, but also that I, I don't think many many companies quite understand what, ha- what work has been done just in, in order to make this this easy, um, and particularly when we're talking about the the prospect of the no deal, um, I, I still don't think we've got quite a full uh, comprehensive view of the potential issues which we could face.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I was in business now, I think my next step would be to set up a company dealing with compliance to deal with the mm. EU.
3: Yeah, and actually yeah. You know, th- there's evidence coming from members that they're already starting starting to look at that kind of issue. So, I think the the documentary compliance, which is that you know if you're if you're a company who's only ever traded with the EU, import and export, you've never done anything else. Um, you don't know anything about international trade in many ways. You'll know about the challenges of dealing with different markets. You'll know about the challenges of cultural differences in different countries. Um, you know you'll know the fact that if you actually if you're sending goods and you're working with you know a country like the Netherlands, actually it's all very straightforward. Um, the business mentality is very very similar. You know you're going to get paid. Um, if you start to do with some Southern European countries, you need to know that you know it might be 180 or 210 days before you get your invoice paid. But broadly. This is what the single market was designed to do: trading inbound or, ex- or inbound imports or exports with an EU country is exactly the same as trading with Wales. That but is
2: a tremendous point, actually. Yeah. I mean, what we're basically saying is that we've got a load of exporters which have no
3: idea how to, how to export. It, I think, yeah, it's, it's, I've got to Almost. be careful, kind of how I, how I phrase that because I think <laughs> yeah. some would kick back. But broadly say, and I think more interestingly. You know, in all of the survey work we did, in the last survey we did in, uh, just before the referendum, um, the vote of member businesses about how they would vote in the referendum was about 55-35 mm. in the last one, uh, just about in favour of Remain. But there was one block of companies that stood out as being the only one that had a majority for leave, and that was exporters, but exporters who don't export to the European Union. Right. And so all of a sudden, actually, you start to see, interestingly, they clearly feel that there is a negative effect of the EU. Because actually, we did, we, we're not using it for its trading benefits. Hmm. Not, we don't get the fluidity of trade because we don't send anything there. So actually, is that regulatory burden? Is that just perceived regulatory burden? All of those things start to open up. Um and I said, yeah, we've we spoken to some companies who are who are sort of starting to get ready for this. Um, you know, there's some interesting examples of, of big exporters to the EU who are starting to look at subsidiary offices uh, on the other side of the channel, so that actually, you know, when we do come outside, they have a division which is within the EU, and essentially, that company will handle internally within its own um, structure, they'll handle all of the cross-border import/export stuff, so that their clients in the EU essentially see absolutely no difference in transaction.
2: Very interesting. So if, if I'm looking for a company with good prospects, maybe a company that's exporting outside of the EU are going to be best placed to take over when you know if we have a situation of no deal.
3: Maybe. But, <laughs> because these things always get more complex, um, I think the challenge is when we start to talk about deals. So people have said, you know, we, you know the EU doesn't have a trade deal with, with the US. Perfectly mm. true. There is no free trade deal with the US. Um, and so actually that's fine, isn't it? Because... You know, we sell to the US, you don't need free trade deals to do trade, everything's fine. No, it's true, we don't have a free trade, the EU doesn't have a free trade deal with the US. But it has got about 38 separate agreements between the UK and the US on all of these things we talked about, about regulatory alignment, about customs compliance, so all of those things. So if we fall out of the EU, what you potentially have is, whilst you say, well, there's no free trade deal between the EU and the US, so there'll be no change, what might happen is the UK falls out of those agreements that are already in place oh. which which might then deliver additional barriers um, I say might because this is what the next two years of you know cantankerous negotiations are going to be about but I think it's, it's you know the, the job of us in this space is just trying to raise awareness that there are there are things below the first layer which you might not be aware of um, which could well, well come into play so just on a quick, quick tangent are there any goods and
2: services traded within the EU and its member states which do not move freely?
3: Um,
1: I, I think I think the one which everyone would jump to would be services, and it's not it's not something which I, I'm particularly well versed on. But it's it's kind of the common view that there isn't a single market for services at this point. Um, is there not? I'm, not? I'm not. I'm not quite sure why that hasn't happened. Yeah, you know?
3: it's just. I mean, slow moving, really. I mean, in many ways, the you know we we talk about the four pillars of, of of free movement within the within the single market. So, free movement of workers, and it's interesting. Workers is the legal definition, not people. Free uh. movement of workers. Free movement of capital. So, money crosses borders without issue. Now, I think to many of us, you know, that's that's perfectly normal yeah Um, but actually you forget you know if you went you know my parents will have gone on holiday in the 60s and government legislated how much cash you could take out of the country so freedom of capital is a relatively modern concept I think that Um, still exists doesn't it it's 20,000 pounds you can take through or 40,000 pounds I think certainly in cash yeah Mm. because it's that's looking at money laundering issues rather than anything else but actually capital itself is free to move around movement of goods, so I think the single market in goods was broadly completed in 1992 mm-hmm. uh, with the Maastricht Treaty. Um, bits have followed on since then. But services, you know, the EU admits it is still woefully behind it, and there is no single free market. Now, people say, what is a free, free market in services? You could talk about things like um, uh, acceptance, mutual acceptance of qualifications. Mm. So if I am a qualified lawyer in the UK, am I seen as a qualified lawyer in Germany? If I'm a qualified architect in France, am I a qualified architect in Bulgaria? There's still a lot of open ground on that. Some of those things happen, have happened, some haven't. Um, there's, um, in in other things, so financial services are a little more open, that's mostly dealt with through the passporting system now. But there are still these big areas where actually you're not free to, your service is not necessarily Accepted and you trade in the third country as easily as you would in the UK. The big one the EU is working on at the moment is digital conversion. So you've seen the thing about, actually, I am still required, my, my phone provider can still charge me more yeah. for using data on their mainland EU than it can in the UK. That is slowly being worked through as part of the, the harmonisation. So it's not, you know, the the big role of the EU, the big single market is still not complete. So when we exit the single market, which is looking more, more and more likely,
2: what tools are are Britain going to wield, or what weapons, for want of of a better word, uh, to make the UK more attractive? And do you think that these are are reasonable things
3: to use? I'm obviously referring here to corporation tax. I always question this, and it always feels slightly odd as someone who's, you know, essentially works as a lobbyist for a business organization. but corporation tax is not the very big deal that a lot of politicians seem to seem to make it to be. Yeah, okay. when, on, and you know, it's, I'm, I'm sure hearing if the, some of my members listening will be cheering me on and some will be throwing things, um, but. You know, George Osborne, when he became Chancellor in 2010, embarked on this tax program to to reduce corporation tax, um, 20% already, falling further over the next few years, um, to make it, you know, the most competitive tax environment in, in the OECD. We already were pretty much the most competitive corporation tax environment in the OECD. And, you know, if I talk to my member businesses, they're far more concerned about um, input taxes, so taxes you pay before you do any turnover or profit making, Uh, particularly business rates coming in with the apprenticeship levy, auto enrolment of pensions, environmental taxes on energy, increased employee national insurance contributions, that's a far bigger concern for most than corporation tax. Uh, And I think, you know, if we could have wound back the clock to 2010, I think we'd rather have seen, you know, big reforms and big reductions of business rates than we saw to corp tax. I probably the outlier for corporation tax is big global companies and where they choose to locate their global headquarters. That's interesting.
2: Um, so, are we to make from that that when we leave the single market, the biggest thing that we can do to attract businesses is not actually corporation tax, but you know, at you know, very top at the moment, reduction of business rates, for instance?
3: It's yeah, it's it, it's a big area for me at the minute. I mean, certainly we would say business rates is too high. The, the complaints. I mean, you've seen you know the, the press over the last few weeks has has, has finally kind of latched onto this big revaluation that's coming in April, and that's caused giving ministers some pressure. But I think it's more about you know it's it, it's corporation tax is is great for politicians to get hold of because it's really simple. It's one round number <laughs> that, that they can spit out. It's it's highly tangible. Everybody kind of understands what it is. Um, and it said it does have some presence on the global stage uh, when when countries are looking at locating but that's not you know it's not it was it may be one of the major reasons companies look to relocate it is only one of a suite and I suspect for most it's not one of the most important you know the big one is market is, is there a market here that's undoubtedly the you know the most important thing uh, do I get access to skills what's the regulatory environment like what's the legal framework like is this a good place to build a you know, manage contract law, Um, you know, and also just actually soft environmental stuff. You know, we talk to companies that are relocating, um, you know, into Manchester, whether they're coming from other parts of the UK or around the world, they're as much interested in cultural opportunities, availability of housing for staff, quality of life. Hmm. That is as high up the agenda as actually, what is this premise is going to cost me, and how much tax will I have to pay on my profits? Interesting. Well, we started at
2: the, at the top of the program um, about European development agencies. I'll just ha- um, aim this one at Alex. When we do leave. Um, how do you suspect the UK is going to go about replacing the work of the ERDF? Is that have I got that right?
1: That's the European Regional Development Fund. Ye- yes. Um, that's uh, I, I, I honestly could not tell you. Um, it's a <laughs> discussion which I've had at various forums. Um, it, it, it's a difficult one because if you look at a country like Norway, for example, so they're they're a member of EFTA, um, yeah. which is the European Free Trade Association, and. EFTA kind of has its own system of these kind of structural investment funds, where, whereby the four countries all put into a pot. Um, Norway actually puts in a lot more than it's actually required to, and then that pot's kind of redistributed to the kind of needy areas, so to speak. So there are definitely mechanisms outside the EU by which we could replace this. But sorry,
2: let me just backtrack on that. There is a, a regional development fund, basically just for Nordic countries. I- um, in fact,
1: it, it's yeah, almost. It's sort it, it's sort of. It's sort of um, it's, it, is it EEA grants? Am, am I might get this wrong. Is it no, I, th- I think you're right. No.
3: it's EEA that works alongside yeah, those yeah, yeah. bits. So it's again, it's another example of one of those things that looks like it's EU, but actually there is a kind of a That's wider no. presence in that in that sphere.
1: I, I, I don't think it's clear that there would be a replacement for the, the ESIF and yeah. the ERDF, though. I mean, it, it's still definitely up in the air. Um, I think when we talk about things like Horizon twenty twenty and Erasmus, I, I'm sort of of the opinion that we would we would have to kind of majorly mess this up to fall out of those if we wanted to retain membership of them but with something like the ESIF and the ERDF, I'm, I'm not quite sure and particularly if the idea is that we stop paying into the budget or stop paying so much into the budget I don't quite see how we reconcile that with maintaining participation in these frameworks and so I don't know it, it, it some, some people argue that it, it's better for our own government to just kind of instead of giving that money to the EU we just Put into a pot for ourselves. Maybe we set up something like a, a national investment bank or something like that. Um, but it's uh, then it comes down to, I guess, down to politics: is it better in the hands of our governments uh, or is it better in the hands of kind of a centralised body, which is kind of independent?
3: And I think we, we've had some interesting views from members on that. I mean. I mean, just, just before I go to those, I think one of the, one of the, one of the points the Leaf campaign made, which was valid uh, about sort of spending into the EU, you know, we all know about this, this big £350 million a week number for the NHS. That's all we, going to the NHS, right? Uh, oh, ab- absolutely, yeah. So, <laughs> so we, we all know that, and we know what you can do when you paint big numbers on the side of a bus. Um, but actually, there is the point that the UK was the second largest net contributor. To the EU budget on the whole, uh, and that by not contributing to that budget, we could the UK government should have enough fiscal save sheer fiscal savings from coming out of the EU to be able to deploy the same amount of money through its well, own. Well, you would have thought. Yeah, it, 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 you know, so politics will determine where that goes. It's theoretically able to do that, um, and you know, the Chancellor has you know guaranteed ERDF funding and things to twenty twenty so far already. What's been interesting for members has been when you say, well, actually, if, you know, know, hypothetical numbers, um, EU gives us £4 billion a year to go and spend on these things, that money now sits with uh, Westminster, Westminster can distribute as it like, what's the problem? Don't you all get to the same benefit? And actually, there's a big reticence that you could actually drag that money out of Westminster's hands into the regions of the UK. Um, because of the perceived or real, depending on your political view, massive over-centralisation of the UK state in London and the South East. So I think there has been, there's been kind of a tacit acknowledgement from some of the membership saying, look, the EU was good at doing this because it was specifically targeting uh, the poorer areas, the less economically developed areas, those interesting infrastructure projects which will help to support growth in areas. Do we believe Westminster would do the same? And actually, we've got a large share of the membership that says, no, we don't believe it would. It's,
1: it's another one where uh, I think potentially we're, we're going to have to set up more institutions than we currently have, and certainly expand expand the government's remit slightly. If if the government's to convince people that it will do a better job at redistributing those funds than the EU will, um, I, I don't think people are going to be happy with that coming straight from Whitehall, and something like a national investment bank might be needed, um, in order just to, to convince people, essentially, that there's an independent body who's actually going to, kind of redistribute this with no kind of political agenda behind it. Well,
2: without kicking off another half an hour discussion, is this not a great argument for regional mayors?
1: It
3: it potentially is, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, And I think actually, of course, you know, the UK is a big outlier in, uh, not only in UK governance, but in kind of Western Western governance, in having such an incredibly centralised... Uh, political and economic system. You know, in every other country, the département in France and the uh, and the the different cantons in Switzerland, there is much more devolved structure. There is mm. much more local autonomy over tax raising, which really outside of council tax does not exist in, in this country but also on spending and investment programmes mm. um, so yeah I mean it's one of the big reasons why we're you know, the chamber we're so in favour of, of the devolution agenda and particularly the mayoral agenda is well, you need to get a big political voice down into the individual cities to let them shout louder than London and it is bizarre as well I think I mean
2: UK and France could be seen as similar, which is they have their cultural and economic capitals in the same place. But if you look at most other developed um, countries, you know, New York and Washington, Canberra, Sydney, you know, it is relatively unusual to have the one city do, do, doing the
3: two things. It is. I think not just that. I mean, there's a lot of the work being done with bodies like Core Cities and Centre for Cities, the think tanks dedicated to, to looking at urban economics in the UK. There's a lot of work being done to show that actually our sec- what we call our second-tier cities, so not your capital, your next largest ones, are woefully undersized. Compared to other developed economies, mm. so so the usual rule is your capital is, you know, is whatever size the capital is. Your next city down is about half the size of that. Your next city down is about a third the size of that. And if you look at if you know you can certainly say France, yeah, Paris, yes, is the big capital, but you've got sizable settlements at Marseille and Lyon and Strasbourg, uh, which sort of distribute that very much so in Germany um, across the multiple cities, mostly because of you know the political change yeah. Germany's gone through. Um, but actually in the UK, you have London, um, you have you know, Greater London at 9 million people. Then what, six, 600,000 here, something like that? In the city, city region, it's two, about 2.7 million, 600,000 in the centre. But we're massively undersized. Uh, and as I say, that you know, there's the, the argument from that is actually we've allowed London to dominate to the exclusion of growth of secondary centres. Um, and that actually if you allowed the UK cities to grow to that kind of pattern we see in other developed nations you know where the second city is about half the size then you'd expect Greater Manchester or Birmingham if, you know, if you're listening from Birmingham you will think you're in the second of city of course Alex has got a vested uh, uh, interest there <laughs> Wolverhampton I yeah. yeah. uh, so wouldn't argue Wolverhampton second city <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'd Mid- you'd argue Power London Just uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no but if, if that kind of pattern followed then we'd expect Manchester to be probably twice the size wow. it is today yeah. Well,
2: that was a wonderful tangent to end on. Uh, thank you both for uh, sharing sharing your views. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you've got any questions, um, what's your
3: Twitter handle again, please, Christian? Uh, you can get me at GMCC Research.
1: And uh, I'm at GMCC underscore Alex.
2: And of course, if you want to contact Pearson's, it's at it's at Pearson's underscore FSB. So until next week, when we'll see you then. Uh,
0: goodbye.